Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the sixth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, a jury of his peers. For more information, including photos and video, Go to AJCBreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. And new this season, join the Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. Because some people during the investigation, we didn't have any foundation of fact, mm-hmm. have said it's you. Said it's me? I remember seeing that they didn't use a strike and being like, yes, look, this guy made it. I think most people were doing whatever they could not to get on. And I was more, I was answering honestly, but I was hoping that I was going to get picked. Twelve of us, plus that one unlucky alternate, will hear the murder trial of Nicholas Benton. We are six men, seven women, six whites, five African-Americans, one Asian-American, and one multiracial woman. We file into the jury box on the murder trial's opening day and settle into 13 identical, uncomfortable, and as I quickly learned, stubbornly unadjustable chairs. We would sit in the same places throughout the trial, although there's no requirement to do that. When we are told to leave the courtroom, as we often are, we retire to a stuffy room with a big table. It's not quite big enough to accommodate 12, let alone 13 people. There's a chalkboard, Yes, like the one in grade school, and there's chalk, but erasers are scarce. There's also a small whiteboard and some markers. There's boxes of stuff around, and a coffee maker, which one juror finally has the courage to try. Remarkably, it works. There's also a small refrigerator, so you can bring a lunch. That stuff you see in the movies, where the whole jury has a meal together in the jury room or at a restaurant, well, that ain't the way it works. At one point, we flirted with the idea of having food brought in during a lunch break. But the deputy told us it would be way too much trouble to get past security. So, no pizza for these 13 hangry men and women. Near the door of our jury room, there's a switch, which will later signal the court that we're ready with our decisions or that we need something. Being a juror is daunting for the obvious reason. I mean, this guy is charged with murder. The charges and legal language are mystifying. We take notes as if the witnesses are no different from teachers or professors lecturing us in class. But we know where this is headed. Someone's life is in our hands. But jury duty is also daunting because nobody really tells you how to do it. And no matter how smart or experienced or savvy you are, you're confused. For that reason, the group is nervous and awkward with each other, imagining the other person knows what to do. In truth, 
no one is entirely sure what's appropriate, especially at first. For example, I still have this lingering sense of familiarity with the prosecutor. I want to stand up and ask, hey, do we know each other? But I fear shouts of mistrial, like you'd see on TV. And again, I'm wondering if I should tell someone that my dad was a cop. But who would I tell? And wouldn't I look like I'm just trying to get out of this? We will hear conflicting evidence. We will hear testimony from unsavory people and sad people and people who show us bloody photos of the crime scene and autopsies. We will be expected to understand arcane points of law and apply them to this case. Fellow juror Elizabeth, who asked us not to use her last name, talks about the strangeness of not talking about the case. We're not allowed to, like, talk at all during the trial. I don't know if most people realize that from day one of the trial until it is over, whether that's days, weeks, months, you are not allowed to get anything cleared up. If you don't understand a witness or you missed something or you're not clear about something, you can't just raise your hand and ask for clarification. One day, I think we were there for 10 hours, possibly, so you're getting a lot of information. You're asked to process this information with just a pen and a paper in your hands. And she had a message for the IT folks at the courthouse. The technology in the room was laughable. You know, nothing worked. We're especially not allowed to go home and Google Nicholas Benton murder case. No outside research of any kind. What we know is limited entirely to what we hear in court. I couldn't even read the AJC's coverage of the case, for that matter. And if for some reason we don't hear what's being said, we aren't even allowed to stop everything and say, what? Or, could you repeat that? Or, I'm sorry, my mind wandered, and I know that's a crucial point. Welcome back to the sixth season of Breakdown, a jury of his peers. I'm Kevin Riley, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and in the summer of 2017, a juror. And I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs writer for the AJC. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support this kind of journalism, please consider subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Go to myajc.com slash subscribe. I've covered a lot of trials, but I've never seen one from the jury box. Now, your attention as a juror is supposed to be undivided, but jurors are also people, people who can tire of being trapped in the box for hours. And you routinely get told to leave the room so that the judge and lawyers can debate what you're sure is something really interesting. You're like a little kid getting sent to your room while the adults talk. And I have to be honest here, you desperately need a few laughs to ease the tension among the 13 people, even if it's a murder trial. Once, the deputy told us we might be laughing a bit too loud during one of our exiles to the jury room. The only diversions, of course, are the ones you find in court. Like, say, the prosecutor's wardrobe? Assistant District Attorney Kara Convery wears suits with skirts each day of the trial. At least one juror doesn't miss it when she changes her look late in the game. Convery describes the reaction of one juror in particular. The last day of trial, I wore a pantsuit. And when you all um, fed back into the jury box, actually, I think she was sitting next to you, and she leans over and says, ooh, pantsuit. <laughs> and I just, I was trying not to laugh out loud because I... Uh, because it was just funny, but it's just such a reminder that they're back there with nothing else to talk about. And so, yeah, of course, you're going to just get whatever entertainment you can out of the courtroom. As we get started, 
I want very much to tape the proceedings so I can refer back to certain moments or arguments. I also want to have a record because I'm sure I'll want to write about this case later. As a juror, however, I don't have the chance to ask permission. Instead, we are yoked to an ancient technology you may have heard of pen and paper. Of course, someone is taping the whole trial. The court stenographers record every word that is uttered on the record. But as we've told you, they will not let us copy or even listen to their damn tapes. But obviously, the tapes would provide us the best and most accurate way to tell you this story. I went to the court reporter and said, Hey, is it okay with you if I use part of your tapes? Because I really want to depict this trial accurately. And she said, No, I'm not going to do that. And I'm, Why not? Why won't they do it, Bill? Well, as this was going on, there was a case pending before the Georgia Supreme Court, the highest court in our state. And this was the very issue whether you could have access to a court reporter's tape of the courtroom proceedings. In a unanimous decision in October, the court ruled that the tape recording was not an official court record. So we didn't have access to it. How could they not be court records? It doesn't make any sense to me. I think the court is making a big mistake. Our entire legal system depends on people understanding it and trusting it. The more information they can have about it, the better off we're going to be. And I don't know the legal arguments. I don't know the whys and wherefores. I don't know why the court reporters won't do it. All I can say is due to an average citizen, it makes no sense. We've been very lucky in previous seasons of Breakdown to have court reporters and judges give us access to these recordings. And I'm going to tell you, we're not giving up. We're going to keep trying to get these tapes. Prosecuting attorneys like witnesses, but they love physical evidence. It can't be cross-examined or confused or shown to be lying. What it can do is draw a bright line from the criminal to the crime. Without saying a word, it can shout to a jury, guilty. As she headed into the trial, Kara Convery had no gun, no getaway car, no fingerprints, no DNA. She did have cell phone records and surveillance video that implicated the defendant. Her biggest challenge was to convince the jury that the guy they were seeing on the video from the Valero station was indeed the guy sitting at the defense table, Nicholas Benton. And this is standard low-resolution surveillance video from a gas station. It's not high-def TV. It's not even standard-def TV. You can see what's going on, but the images are not crystal clear. Defense attorney Gerald Griggs summed it up rather neatly. I knew from the very beginning of this case, when I got it a year before the trial, that it was going to hinge on whether or not the jury believed that the person depicted in the video was in fact Nicholas Benton. If you listen to the first two episodes of this podcast, you already know way more than the jury did at the outset of the trial. Kara Convery acknowledged the complexity and also the gravity of the case when she talked to us about her opening statement. This was not a movie for them. This is not a TV show. It was reality. That's the most important thing for me as a prosecutor in these kinds of cases where I'm going to have combative witnesses or recanting witnesses or people who are afraid or scared because I want you all to know from the outset this is going to be not pretty at all times um, and I need you to be patient and work with me through the whole process because I want you to know that there's a lot coming. Um, but I want to do that in a concise enough way that you understand maybe a little bit about what the big picture is going to look like at the end. Convery's opening statement was a methodical journey through the crime and the investigation, mostly rendered on PowerPoint. But I have to confess, to me, 
It was a Russian novel of multiple characters and confusing circumstances. Here's something that I know as an editor. When you're trying to tell a story, it gets hard to follow if you have more than two characters. More than five, and you're Dostoevsky. Unfortunately, the state couldn't reduce this to a story about two characters. There were at least four. This summarizes the narrative presented by the state. The four men, in two cars, rendezvous at a Valero gas station across the street from the Burger King. Surveillance video from the Valero shows first one man and then another get out of one car and walk up to the other, the blue Bonneville. One gets in. The other just leans into the window as if talking with the occupants. The state says the man leaning into the Bonneville was Nick Benton. The Valero is well-lit and busy. Here's Detective Scott Burhalter in his interview with me after the trial. They talked for a little bit, and they walked back over to the uh, Bonneville. And at that point, according to uh, Mr. Redding, Mr. Bennett said, now let's go over across the street over there. And you can actually see Mr. Benton kind of look and point over the direction of the Burger King. So Mr. Benton went back to his car. Mr. White followed. Carlton Redding and Reggie Koiku drive the Blue Bonneville over to the Burger King. They are followed in another car by Fat Weich and the man the state says is Nick Benton. The cars back into parking spots side by side. Weich and his companion get into the back seat of the Bonneville. The Bonneville is a four-door sedan. Carlton Redding and Reggie Koiku are in the front seats. In the back, on the driver's side, Quincy Fat Weich. On the passenger side, the shooter. Of course... The state says the shooter was Nicholas Benton. And he says that as soon as Mr. Benton got into the uh, vehicle, he immediately pulls out a gun and announces a robbery, demands give it up, you know what time it is. And at some point, a shootout occurs. The shooter in the back seat fires 10 rounds. Koiko is hit six times, once in the back of the head, once in the left side of the head, once in the neck, and three times in the right shoulder. Fat Weish was hit three times by bullets apparently from the same gun, one to the chest, one to the right shoulder, and a graze to the abdomen. The medical examiner said Weish could have only survived two to five minutes as his chest cavity filled with blood. Koiku had a weapon of his own and got off one shot before the fusillade hit him. That slug was found in the trunk of the Bonneville. That was the state's story of the case the story for the jury. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash Indictment Newsletter. There was one last bizarre footnote. Benton called Weish twice, two minutes after the shootings. Detective Burhalter explains why those two calls went unanswered. So he accidentally shoots his boy, but I don't think he realizes it. He realizes that, let me get the hell out of here, he gets into back into his car speeds away, at some point, it's like, oh my God, I forgot my boy. 
So he tries calling Quincy twice. Quincy can't answer because he's in the process of dying right now. The two calls that Weish couldn't answer would become very important to the state's case later. The prosecution's story was not flawless. It started out with a bad misfire. Remember Carlton Redding, the driver of the Blue Bonneville, who ran from the scene and out onto I-285? One of the officers who arrested Redding took the stand early in the trial. But when the defense asked him to point to Redding if he was in the courtroom, the officer pointed at the wrong guy. He pointed at the man sitting at the defense table, the defendant, Nicholas Benton. Carlton Redding wasn't even in the courtroom. As defense attorney Griggs had pointed out, this case hinged on identification. It's a great start. That's one of those moments, and there are always moments in a trial where something happens that you kind of look around like, did that really just happen? Um, And that was one of those moments. But uh, it was my hope that the jury would see from the beginning, this is a misidentification case. Because if the first officer gets up there and misidentifies Nicholas, um, then the rest of the witnesses are going to do the same thing. The prosecutor knew her witness had just damaged her case. So she stole a look over to the jury. And I remember wanting to look over immediately, but trying to stay calm and act cool and like I wasn't phased. Um, And I could see you all flipping a page to make a note of that. She was right. My notes from the trial indicated a what-the-hell entry on this blunder. Burhalter told of another such blunder later, this one potentially even more damaging to the prosecution. We'll get to that. But first, I need to talk about Carlton Redding's testimony. He, of course, was the prosecution's star witness. But the jury didn't know that. The lawyers don't announce, the state calls our star witness. You'll want to pay attention to this guy. So Redding's just another state witness in a string of 25 state witnesses. We realized only later, of course, that the case turned in part on Redding's testimony. So let's get into it in some detail. As you'll recall, there were active warrants for Redding's arrest at the time of the shooting. This is what Detective Burhalter was talking about earlier when he said you can't have auditions for witnesses. Witnesses are the people who happen to be there at the time. It doesn't matter how long their criminal records are, whether they dress well, whether they sell dope or use cars. All that matters is that they were there. Connery put Redding on the stand on the first day of testimony. She told me she came to know Redding in the months before the trial. She talks about his resistance to being a witness. Carlton Redding is a young man who is a native of Atlanta. He's been here all his life. Um, He's a tough guy. He's definitely not an angel. Surprisingly, you know, when you read about somebody, you listen to their interview, Um, You hear about someone, you kind of develop an idea of what they might look like in your mind. The first time I met Carlton Redding, he he didn't look anything like what I expected. He's kind of a petite guy. He's a little bit on the shorter side. He's um, a little bit shy. As for taking the stand, Convery knew it wasn't going to be easy for Redding to do. He knew what it meant to take the stand and testify and what that could mean for him and his family. So that's something he was very worried about. And unfortunately, that's something that happens a lot in what we do. We get a lot of fear. When he tells me that he's afraid to return back to his apartment or his home, his community, um, after he's testifying, I didn't think that was a crazy fear. Convery says as part of her preparation, she tries to meet with witnesses at the scene of the crime. I want to be in that parking spot with him, she says of Redding. And he hated that. 
he said that our car looked like it was the police. You know, we have an unmarked just investigator vehicle, but it's a government car. You can kind of tell. Um, he said that, you know, this I was reckless having him out there like that, and he laid down in the back seat for the entire conversation. The jury had no idea the pressure Redding was under when he took the stand or how frightened he was. Convery said she thought he did pretty well. There was a piece of video the jury didn't get to see or hear, but I came across it in the files the police turned over to us weeks after the trial. Detective Burhalter interviewed Redding four days after the shooting at the Atlanta City Jail. There's a crutch leaning against the wall. Remember that a police car had struck Redding that night? Redding refers to a Pontiac G8 that he says the other men were driving. So I backed into the parking spot, and the G8 backed into the parking spot, and then they both got into my car, and the, like I said, the light-scared tall fella got behind me this time. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And then the, uh, the dude, the driver out of that G8 got behind Rich in the passenger side. And like I said, as soon as he got in, he shut the door. So like I said, when he got in the car at Burger King, he just stretched around on Rich. Hey, give me all your money. Give me all your cash. And then all of a sudden, I heard shots fired. I jumped out the car running for my life, man. Redding says he watches as the black G8 pulls out of the Burger King lot. And I ran, when he shot across the street, I ran back towards my car to see if Redding was okay. I called Redding two, three times and grabbed my cell phones. Redding's testimony at trial was not quite as straightforward. We started off kind of slow. He was had a little bit of an attitude with me. Um, not like a, I'm angry at you, but just a, why are you asking me this? I hate that I'm here kind of attitude. He warmed up a little bit, started giving me a little more detail, but he was kind of dodgy about the things that weren't gonna be positive for him. Like when we tried to talk about why he was out there, what was going on, he would hide from those things, which I hated because that just makes it look like he's hiding other things when I knew in fact he wasn't. Um, and I had that conversation with him before. I said, you can answer the tough questions and we can just get it all out there and rip the Band-Aid, or you can play a game with it and it's going to look more suspicious than it actually is. Convery's biggest score with Redding didn't come during her direct examination, but during the cross-examination by the defense. I didn't really set myself up for an ID, expecting it or not, but he, remember, was outside the courtroom waiting with everybody else. So he had an opportunity to observe the defendant outside the courtroom as well, which I didn't know. He was talking about Nick Benton, he was, but he was saying, you know, the guy who approached your car did this. Isn't it true that the guy, and somehow along, in the middle of that sequence, I noticed that Carlton was looking at Nicholas Benton more than he was looking at anyone else in the courtroom. He was not looking at me, he was not looking at defense, he wasn't looking at the jury, he was staring at Nick Benton. And then he looked back over to me, and I just, in that moment I thought, oh, he's gonna, he's about to ID. And so he did. And in a case in which identification is critical, this is a major development. Convery theorizes that Redding lost his patience. Defense attorney Griggs was blindsided by Redding's identification of his client. We never expected that Carlton Redding would get on the stand and identify Nicholas Benton as the one um, that he saw, because in you know the other out-of-court um, times, he never identified Nicholas Benton. Uh, and he got on the stand and identified him, and it was not a good moment for my client. Whether the jury believed Redding would be one of the most important questions in the trial. And here's another crazy thing about Carlton Redding. 
The video shows Redding running away from the car after bullets erupt from the windshield. Anyone would expect that. But then he comes running back. Then he runs away again. Then he comes running back again. Redding explained all this from the stand. One time he ran back to get his phone, which he'd left in the Bonneville. You'd go back for your phone, right? Even at the scene of a double homicide? Then he returned a second time to recover his marijuana. So running back to get your weed, that's obviously a personal call. So Redding's credibility was one of the biggest questions of the trial. And one important thing contributed to doubts about him. And this is beside the fact that he was driving the car in a drug transaction, and beside the fact that he has two outstanding warrants, and beside the fact that he ran from the scene and then came back to retrieve his weed, and beside the fact that he decided to use I-285 as his escape route. Don't forget, that's where Redding and the two cops got hit by the patrol car. He was the only person who could positively place the shooter at the scene. But just like the cop on the stand who failed to identify Redding, Redding himself had already failed to identify Benton. When he was shown a photo lineup four days after the murders, Redding picked the wrong guy's photo. Griggs says he really thought this would help his client at trial. When given the opportunity to identify the person he spent at least some of the most perilous and hair-raising time in a car where he sees his well, at that point, it was his friend. In the trial, he said he really didn't know this guy. But his friend shot, and you don't identify him. And he's clearly in the lineup. Um, and he's clearly identifiable based on the lineup because he really didn't look like any other people in the lineup. Redding was shown two sets of photo lineups. In the first, he positively identified Quincy Fat Weish as being the guy who got in the car but wasn't the shooter. But in the second lineup, which contained a photo of Benton, Redding couldn't pick him out. Redding aside, there were three witnesses whose testimony was unimpeachable. They weren't the most animated of witnesses, but their reliability wasn't an issue. The first was a pair of cameras which provided video testimony that appeared to have captured a killer. One camera was bolted to the wall of the Burger King. It caught part, but not all, of the deadly encounter, and one was at the Valero station. It provided clear video of a man with a backpack walking up to the Bonneville and briefly conferring with its occupants. Then we see the Bonneville in a black sedan leaving the Valero to go across the road. You know how when you're making a critically important presentation at work and the technology won't work? It won't connect to the projector, or you can't get a Wi-Fi signal, or the audio's down? And then the IT people are in a meeting? We and the jury were eager to see the videos from the crime scene. We're thinking the video is going to solve the case then and there. So Convery is all set to show the Valero video when, well, you know what happened. Damn thing wouldn't load. I had so much trouble getting these videos to play. With this courtroom technology, there was a few different videos, right? But the one that gave me particular anxiety was the gas station video, which, of course, was the most important thing the jury looked at for the whole entire process. So the Valero video was fairly low quality, not nearly as clear as you'd want it to be. The Burger King video was high resolution, but it was motion activated and choppy, making it hard to figure out what you're seeing. The juror named Elizabeth was not a big fan of the Burger King video. The video of the actual murders, you can't see anything pretty much to the, from the passenger side door where, where Reggie was sitting in the passenger seat. 
you can't see the other vehicle really or anything that happens there because they parked right on the edge of the security camera's view. So you really don't see who gets in the back of the car. In the end, the videos were not very satisfying. They were just pieces, but not the whole. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Remember that Nicholas Benton served as a pallbearer at Fat Weish's funeral. There was video at the trial of the funeral. The two were close, but Weish died in the shootout that night. As we know, the bullets that killed him came from the same gun as the bullets that killed Reggie Koiku. There was a possibility that Weich's shooting was accidental. If Benton was the shooter, why would he kill his friend? The next non-human witnesses would provide important testimony. First, they would strongly suggest that Benton, the defendant, and Weich were setting up a drug deal with Reggie Koiku. They were the cell phone towers that passively tracked the calls between Koiku and Weich that night. They were also able to show roughly where Nicholas Benton was and when he was there. The record of cell calls was particularly damning. Among Koiku and Weich and Benton, there were 27 calls during a two and a half hour period. We don't know what they said on those calls, only that they made them, but the implication was clear. They weren't planning a Memorial Day cookout. They were setting up a drug deal, specifically marijuana and a lot of it. Nearly every person on the jury was writing furiously during this testimony. And there was also one text that seemed especially important. Just 10 minutes before the shooting, Weish sends a text to Benton that says, one strap. The prosecution would say that Weish had scouted the Bonneville at the Valero gas station, one strap meant one gun. That would be the gun found on Reggie Koiku's lap by the police after the fatal shooting. In addition to the just-the-facts Detective Burhalter, the prosecution put up some memorable witnesses. Like the crime scene tech who chewed gum on the stand, or the GBI firearms examiner who testified about the guns, the bullets, and shell casings used in the crime. He established that one gun, a forty-five caliber, was fired at least once, and one gun, a 40 caliber, was fired 10 times. The 40 caliber was never recovered. When asked to examine the 45, the scientist reached inside his jacket and retrieved a pair of black gloves with which to handle the weapon. That was kind of cool. The prosecution's final witness was the county's associate medical examiner. Dr. Michael Henninger's testimony was obviously important, and it found a ready audience in the jury box. Some jurors liked Henninger's bubbling enthusiasm. Some thought Henninger was a little too enthusiastic. This was an example of something I saw more than once during this experience. That was how two people hearing the same thing, seeing the same person, could come away with totally different impressions. Here's juror Judy Bloom, the lawyer. He was just great. He was into his job. He, he was all over it. He knew his stuff. 
I thought he enjoyed his work. And here's juror Joe Ransom. He needed to retire. (laughs) The way uh, he went about it, he was more like he was doing a movie set than he was actually, he was having, like he was having too much fun with it. He just wasn't like he was doing a ME's job where you're saying this is what killed him with one of the sad faces on to cheery laughing because he couldn't point to something. I mean, it's professionally, you got to put that to the side. Well, anyway, he was the last of the state's 25 witnesses. The defense then put up three of its own. The crux of Griggs' defense was compelling nonetheless. As a culture, he said, we've grown accustomed to the way forensic evidence routinely solves criminal cases on TV and in real life. But where was the forensic evidence here? There was no trace DNA evidence found inside the Bonneville and no fingerprints. On the Valero video, the man identified as Benton is seen putting his hand on the roof of the Bonneville. But no palm print or fingerprint belonging to Nicholas Benton was recovered from any part of that car. We've been in a um, society of criminal investigation that has come so far in 100 years. We have fingerprint technology. We have DNA. We have trace DNA. We got ballistics. We got all of this. And we have the ability to determine what actually happened. The state wants you to throw all that away and base your decision on the word of a felon. Here's the problem with that. If Nicholas Benton committed this crime, his DNA would be all over the crime scene. His fingerprints would have been all over the crime scene. And, and, and I can't just say that DNA and fingerprint evidence is a red herring. She, she mentioned that a couple times, a red herring. It's not a red herring. That's reasonable doubt. That's doubt you ain't got to go searching for, that you don't have to go looking for. It's right there in your face. And of course, there's no video that definitively shows Benton getting into the car at the Burger King, much less pulling the trigger. Griggs called Kathy Weish, the mother of Quincy Weish, to the stand for the defense. Isn't that kind of unusual, Bill, the victim's mom being called for the defense? I've seen that once in the hot car murder trial involving Ross Harris. Leanna Taylor testified for the defense. I can't think of another time I've ever heard it. Well, Miss Weish came down squarely for the defense. She testified that she didn't think Benton killed her son. That was a blow to the prosecution, but Convery had an answer for it. About a month before the trial, Nick Benton had run into Kathy Weish at the local Publix. The two spoke for a long time. She had met with me um, and been totally different in her sort of feeling towards Nick Benton. And then a few days later, the public's interaction happens. And so it was a turning point for her and her attitude towards me. So I wanted you all to have that. My investigator followed up with her to, I think, serve her a subpoena or just confirm a court date with her. But he had another brief interaction with her. And at that interaction, she said to him, oh, you know, what I said the other day, I'm not sure if that's right. I, I don't think Nick could have done this. He inquired, well, what's happened? What, what, what has changed? Because it was such a shift in her just tone towards us. And she said, well, I saw him at the Publix the other day, and we spoke. We spoke about fat for a long time, and he didn't do this, um, which led my investigator to quickly go down to the Publix, a smart investigative move, and just see what that video looked like if we were even able to find them on the video. 
The jury saw that Publix video. We couldn't hear what Benton was saying to his dead friend's mother, but we did have a chance to watch Benton in a normal interaction. We got to see his mannerisms, his walk, the way he carried himself. Even that little bit of information was valuable to us. The jury was primed now to hear from Benton himself, but Benton never took the stand in his own defense. Juries usually don't get to hear from the defendant. Here's Don Samuel, the criminal defense attorney in Atlanta, who is Breakdown's resident legal expert. Well, there are many defense attorneys who take the position that it is our job to defend the client. It is not the defendant's job to defend himself. Uh, Most people, I think, would agree that when the defendant testifies, it is by far and away the most important part of the case. If the defendant slips up, if he says something that the jury doesn't believe, it's the end of the case. And all of your hard work, your great opening statement, your brilliant cross-examinations, your fabulous closing argument becomes irrelevant because if the jury believes that the defendant didn't tell the truth, it's all over. Uh, And thus, it is the belief of many lawyers, and I pretty much share this, that when you put the defendant on the stand, you you are pretty much um, giving him you know, the obligation to defend himself. He has to be perfect. And you can't anticipate every question the prosecutor's going to ask. You can't anticipate the problems the defendant may have when he's actually on the stand as opposed to preparing in your office. Uh, and I've had too many cases where I thought the trial was going very well until the defendant testified. Benton's lawyer, Gerald Griggs, was thinking the same thing. There's a danger in, inherent in putting a client on the stand because... With any witness, nerves, recollection of the facts in that particular venue is difficult. So engaging whether or not a defendant should take the stand, you make that calculus of what can you gain as opposed to what can you lose. And I thought that in this trial, his story had been told. So only thing he could do was lose. Now I understand people want to see the defendant get up there and say, I didn't do this, it's not me. And I thought his mother would be a good witness to do that because you have a very well-trained advocate on the other side, the state, that's going to try to poke holes in everything he's saying and he's probably never been involved in a situation where you have a trained cross-examiner going through everything you're saying. It's very dangerous when you put your client on the stand. I've done it over the course of the 13 years I've been practicing law maybe seven times and six times it didn't go well. So defense attorneys know that juries really want to hear from the defendant, and they still won't risk putting him on the stand. The jury, of course, doesn't understand that. So how does this all play out with our jury? Well, that's what episode four is for. Hey, Kevin, I got a question. What about that child's pink bunny blanket that was found in the backpack in the car? Finally, it comes back into the trial because the defense attorney holds it up in front of us. But all he's trying to do is demonstrate how meaningless it was. This was supposed to be a drug deal. But other than Carlton's little stash, there was no marijuana, and there was nowhere near enough money on anyone to pay for a lot of marijuana. So two people were killed for a drug deal that was never going to happen. Where both looked like maybe they were trying to rip off the other two. This is so senseless and sad. It really is. Next, on Breakdown. I'm pretty observant. I watch his uh, actions sitting behind the defendant's table as well as his lawyer. And at no point did I see the lawyer conversing with him. 
he had a blank stare on his face. I seen him smile one time the last day. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Kevin Riley and Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. Sound by Chris Basta at Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Chris Basta, Bo Emerson, and Billy Guin. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagore, Ryan Horn, and all the great people at the AJC, plus Chris Nicholson, Buddy Hall, and Judge Robert McBurney.